the name of the discussion is actually, the good news is not good advice. But we've been talking about the good news for the last few weeks here at Spark, and you've been, if you've been here, you've been taking part in this discussion of the gospel as in what the good news is and what it is not. So just as a quick rundown, Pastor Kevin first shared the bad news about the good news. It is good news about an event in history, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He continued with part two of the bad news about the good news, which focuses on the stories of heartbreak, pain, and tragedy. And Jesus is in the middle of all of them. Pain is not for nothing. Hope exists in all of our difficult stories. And God's victory over sin and death is told through our pain. Pastor Kevin then followed with the good news is God news. God is real. He is transcendent. He is imminent, meaning he is in our hand. He's right here. And he is king in a way that we can't fathom. Next, a member of our Spark family, Omer Akhtar, shared a message called, The Good News is Not Just About You. It speaks to something more than you, something greater than you. And continuing, last week, Pastor Danielle spoke about the good news of the kingdom and the cross and how Christ exemplifies how to live and respond at any time, and especially at this time. And now, there's me. So how do I bring all of this together? Well, the good news is a story in the event of history, but it's not just that. The good news speaks of a God who lives and works through each of our stories of joy and sorrow, but it's not just that. The good news points to a God who participates in our stories and who calls us to participate in his, but it's not just that. Think of God's news in the same way that we think of God's kingdom as a construction project. God shows, showed glimpses of this construction project throughout the Bible, from the creation in the Garden of Eden, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob building a family and a nation on God's promise, to Moses and the rescue of that, na- that nation from slavery, to that nation becoming a nation-state and becoming a light and a blessing to the nations. It was all put together piece by piece, tribe by tribe, family by family, individual by individual. And it continued through Jesus in making the promise of a kingdom of God come to fruition. In his life, the fruits of the kingdom began to break through. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Through his teachings, his sermons, his parables, his miracles, and his acts of compassion and correction, Jesus provided the blueprints for construction. And then through his resurrection, Jesus broke ground on the project and brought his friends and followers into the mix alongside him to be truly his co-laborers. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so for the last 2,000 years, his followers and those who became his followers worked alongside the Spirit of God to build this new kingdom, which would be unlike any other that preceded it. And that required the workers to see the world in a new light. For 2,000 years, there have been variations in perspectives and in practices, and some of them have been good. 
taking the workers in directions that God has led them. And some of them have been not so good, taking the workers away from the construction projects of God and toward projects of their own. And one of these projects was undertaken by a man in the 19th century. He was very much a man of his time, imbued with ideas of the Enlightenment in Europe and a focus upon knowledge and wisdom and reason, which included the freedom of an individual to practice his own religion. He did believe in God, but not in a God that was invested and involved in the world. And after two de decades of considering this, he began, decided to begin his project, which would reconcile his worldview with that of his religious heritage. And at age 77, he took six printed books of the New Testament Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and cut verses out of them, pasted these verses into loose blank pages in chronological order, and then had them bound into a single book, which he titled, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It included Jesus' teachings, his sermons, his parables, and his life story, including his last days, his last meal with his followers, his rest in trial, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. It did not include one single supernatural event. No water to wine. No walking on water. No transfiguration or any conversation between messengers of God and humanity. No miracles. In this account of Jesus' life, the blind did not see. The lame did not walk. The deaf were not made to hear. The dead were not raised to life. And that included Jesus. This is how his book ended. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, or tomb, wherein was never man yet laid. There they laid Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. For this man, the book, like the life of Jesus, ended on Friday, at sundown. This version of the Gospels met this man's desire to, quote, clarify the teachings of Jesus, which he believed provided the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which had ever been offered to man. The man shared his version of the good news with no one, reading the book before bed and telling only a few of his friends. The book was archived after his death. And then in 1904, the book was published. And for the next 50 years, it was given to every single new member of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. The man's name was Thomas Jefferson. Befitting his Enlightenment worldview, Jefferson believed that Jesus was a wise teacher whose words offered a lot, but that his deeds were overblown and his identity was misrepresented. Jesus was a brilliant man, but just a man. Jefferson's book was created to do what so many of us ex exposed to the life of Christ attempt to do, to deconstruct it into a work filled with good advice and little else. Advice is considered a suggestion or beneficial course of action. And we can find all sorts of advice in the Bible, and especially in the Gospels. For example, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not sit, first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man was, began to build and was not able to finish. This is good, good advice. Be pragmatic. Know what's attainable, and do not start what you're unable to finish. This is a practical piece of wisdom that few would argue with. In fact, I have seen many Sunday school lessons on verses like these that focus exclusively, exclusively on the wisdom of Jesus' sayings. It can be the B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. 
But within every suggestion you find in the Gospels, there's also an explicit reason that relates specifically to God. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is an advice. This is about a specific relationship. Jesus is saying, it will cost all of you a lot to be my follower. Each of you should not decide without counting the cost, without considering and accepting what you may lose as a result, and without considering and recognizing that the loss might be worth it. Here's another example of good advice. One who is faithful in a little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Again, this is wisdom. Be faithful with what is given to you so that you can be given more. But here's the advice in context. No servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This isn't advice either. This is about relationship with God. Where does your true loyalty lie? Is it in acquiring material wealth, or is it to God who provides that material wealth to us for his purposes? I have no idea how Thomas Jefferson was able to highlight the advice from the Gospels and then remove the primary reason, the primary person behind the advice, but he did it, and we're prone to doing it too. And I'd like to ask up Olivia Chang to help me with something. If we consider that the good news is bits and pieces of good advice and wise counsel from the life of a sage, and we remove what we consider to be extraneous, so there's Jesus turning water into wine. We'll take it away. And let's see. There is Jesus giving sight to the blind man. That's gone. And next. There is Jesus healing the woman from the issue of blood. And there is Jesus calming the storm. And there is Jesus speaking on the forgiveness of sins. And there is Jesus rising from the dead. One more. There is Jesus speaking of his own divinity. Thank you. Perfect. Nicely done. (laughs) So if we pull all of these parts of Jesus' life out then what we're left with is a story without its true beginning, middle, or end. What we're left with is the what, the when, and the where of the story without the who or the why. The good news is filled with good advice, but there's so much more. Unlike Jefferson, if you leave the good news fully intact, it demands something of you, more than just to consider a suggestion or ponder a bit of wisdom. It demands that you consider the following. Either Jesus was crazy or deliberately misleading, and everything he ever said or did should be dismissed as such, or he was right about everything. This is known as the lunatic lord or liar, uh, liar or lord argument, also known as the mad, bad, or god argument. And 20th, the 20th century Christian writer C.S. Lewis provides probably the most famed consideration of this. I am trying here to prevent anyone 
saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We cannot do as Jefferson did. We cannot come to the good news with our own preconceived, obstinate notion of who God is and what he does and why he does it, and then leave out everything that is unexplainable, unbelievable, or quote-unquote unworthy of who our God is. The good news is the story of an event in history, but it's not just that. The good news speaks of a God who lives and works through each of our stories of joy and sorrow, but it's not just that. The good news points to a God who participates in our stories, but it's not just that. The good news is also a call to relationship, to accept God on his terms, and not just to participate in his life, but to allow him to weave his life and ours together. We see this in the words and deeds of the Old Testament prophets from Moses to Zechariah, speaking truth and political and, to political and economic power and demanding people to acknowledge their relationship with God, to admit their mistakes and repent, to turn away from our own construction projects and return to, build, to God's kingdom-building efforts. These building blocks are all around us, in our talents, in our experiences, in our successes, and in our failures. But are we wise enough to perceive this or to know that when, when we're not using them or when we're misusing these, this is where the prophet comes in. For example, through the prophet Jeremiah, God reminds the people living their lives together with him does not only take place in a house of worship, like a temple or a church, but our lives with him also take place outside in the world amongst those we normally don't hold in reverence. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust, trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as in only my house. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you of old to your fathers forever. For in that day when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. The call to relationship and what that truly entails is seen in Jesus, who serves as both a prophet for God and an example for us, and more. For although the prophets spoke of the kingdom of God that was to come, Jesus spoke of it as present, something new and revolutionary was taking place, and his followers were called to join in. 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. This parable focuses on equity in the kingdom of heaven. And it is different than what we're used to. But look at the metaphor. The owner of the vineyard is seeking laborers. The owner could do the work on his own, but he chooses others to join in the work. To till, to plant, to water, to prune, and to harvest. This is an analogy that Jesus continued earlier in the story. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to them, his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. So what is the work of the harvest? Teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction, and bringing the lost back to the one who provides purpose. The good news is a call to relationship. So what is our response? According to theologian N.T. Wright, there are four ways, and he's British, by the way, so this is from an outside perspective. There are four ways in which we in America tend to respond to the call of the gospel. And three of the responses that Christians, uh, are, are responses that Christians before us have tried as well. The first, we're done. We've accomplished everything we needed to do. And so we're just going to wait for heaven to become our ultimate home. But what about the resurrection and all the implications for that, for our world, and the renewal of creation? What does that mean? It's not our problem. A second possible response. We're disconnected. As Wright states, we, live, we create a parallel society in which the kingdom values of Jesus are lived out for all to see, and we ignore that Jesus' authority on earth implies that God desires for everyone to be reconciled to God. We create a separation, a separate world that we now live in, and we leave the other world to chance. A third one. We settle on the right. We adopt the conservative political position as that of true Christianity. And it includes freedom and security, but it's rooted in a desire for control and an almost Puritan view of earning God's blessings through proper individual behavior. In other words, salvation can come via our good works and our pragmatic behavior. We may not say that, but we think it. And for some on the right, that also includes using political and economic power to establish dominion, to take control, to create the kingdom of God in whole, as Christendom. That is contrary to God's usual construction method, using weakness and vulnerability and surrender. The fourth way is a new take on an old approach. We settle on the left. We adopt the liberal progressive political position as our true Christianity. Certainly, care for the marginalized and social justice are Christian virtues. However, this movement is rooted not in God's love, but in secular humanism. In your, your Enlightenment, 
views of human progress, progress that can bring about a utopian kingdom without God. In this case, humanity becomes the prime mover and God becomes an afterthought. The heart of each of these responses is in the right place. It's a desire to respond to the call, but each misses out on key points. Number one, we are not the rescuers. We are the rescued. Number two, we are not rescued from the world. We're rescued for the world. Number three, the kingdom will not be built by what others consider to be successes, but through what the world considers failures. For example, in his lifetime, Jesus' followers never grew beyond a few hundred people, and Jesus was executed by the state. By our standards, that's a failed movement. But as Wright put it, we are to be kingdom bringers, yes, but to do this first because of Jesus' own suffering, and second, by means of our own. Sharing in his suffering is the way in which we are to extend his kingdom into the world. Suffering is redemptive. Christ brought the solution to the problem of evil through humility, selflessness, and sacrifice, not through pride, not through power, and not through control. While force can change a person's behavior, it cannot change a person's heart. But love can change both. This is why the gospel is not advice. It is not here to tell us how to live a good life or how to have your sins forgiven or how to go to heaven. Instead, it calls us for a specific response. We seek. We seek a dependence upon God. We seek an interdependence upon one another. Our sins were forgiven by God, but for a purpose, to serve God and alongside one another as agents of his kingdom, taking part in his work to put things right again. The call may look different for each of us depending on the tools that we have been given to work with or the place that we find ourselves in, but the specifics are pretty clear. Come to you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you in the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you, vis- and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty or give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, amen, I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, Jesus is saying, you who answered the call, who took it more than just good advice, who decided that love for my neighbor was necessary as part of your love for me, you have been building the kingdom. Now come and join me in this kingdom that we've built together. Do not be confused. Answering the call of Jesus is hard work. It stretches us in ways we find uncomfortable, even painful. It asks us to set aside what the world around us would consider success in order to strive for what the world would consider failure. The work of kingdom building can be thankless and harsh, and it can draw criticism and violence, but it's necessary, and it's worth it. The book, No Future Without Forgiveness, provides a summary of Bishop Desmond Tutu's work in the years after apartheid ended in South Africa. During the years of apartheid or segregation, whites committed great injustices and atrocities towards blacks, 
and blacks responded in kind. And the leaders that stood at the end of it all realized that the country could not move forward if they swept everything under the rug or if they exacted harsh penalties upon everyone. In order to reconcile both sides, the perpetrators of these atrocities needed to openly admit and confess what they had done and then be forgiven by the state. Desmond Tutu sat on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was criticized for being weak and not seeking real justice because the criti critics were so hardened against compassion by years of conflict. Tutu wrote of how odd forgiveness seemed in this or any environment racked with hatred by sharing the story of Gordon Wilson, a citizen of Northern Ireland whose daughter Marie was killed in an IRA bomb attack. Wilson was criticized for not seeking revenge. He was criticized for saying to his daughter's killers, I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. It is a rare person who arrives at that state of perfect spiritual serenity. I suppose they are saints of sorts, not necessarily beatified and canonized saints, but the kind of people in whose presence we intuit the nearness of God because they bring their best friend with them everywhere they go. One such was Gordon Wilson. He was a man so practiced in the discipline of love that when his beautiful daughter Marie died, hard and cruelly, at the slaughter that was the Enniskillen bombing, her hand in his as she slipped away, the words of love and of forgiveness sprang as naturally to his lips as a child's eyes are drawn to his mother. His words shamed us, caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we were, had expected and what we were used to. They brought stillness with them. They carried a sense of the transcendent into a place so ugly we could hardly bear to watch. But he had his detractors and unbelievably his bags of hate mail. How dare you forgive, they shouted. What kind of father are you that can forgive your daughter's killers? It was as if they had never heard the command to love and forgive anywhere before. It was as if they were being spoken for the first time in the history of humanity. And Christ had never uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As one church-going critic said to me on the subject of Gordon Wilson, surely the poor man must have been in shock, as if to offer that love and forgiveness as a sign, as a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. There may, and this is uh, Desmond Tutu right here. There may indeed have been moments when God may have regretted creating us. But I am certain that there are many more times when God has looked and seen all of these wonderful people who have shown in the dark night of evil and torture and abuses and suffering. Shown as they have demonstrated their nobility of spirit, their magnanimity, as they have been ready to forgive, and so they have dispelled the murkiness. And fresh air has blown into the situation to change it. It has filled people with new hope that despair, darkness, anger, resentment, and hatred would not have the last word. There is hope that a new situation could come about when enemies might become friends again and when the dehumanized perpetrator might be helped to recover his lost humanity. This is not a wild, irresponsible dream. It has happened, and it is happening, and there is hope that nightmares will end, hope that seemingly intractable problems will find solutions, and that God has some tremendous fellow workers, some outstanding partners out there, each of us has a capacity for greater good, and that is what makes God say that it was well worth the risk to bring us into his existence. Extraordinarily, God, the omnipotent one, depends on us, puny, fragile, 
vulnerable as we may be, to accomplish God's purposes for good, for justice, forgiveness, and healing and wholeness. A Russian priest was accosted by a brash young physicist who rehearsed all the reasons for atheism and arrogantly went on, therefore, I don't believe in God. The little priest, not put off at all, replied quietly, it doesn't matter. God believes in you. God believes in us. God depends on us to help make this world all that God wants it to be. That was South Africa of 1995, a nation torn apart by cold civil war, populated by individuals filled with fear and trauma, wounded by decades of violence and injustice in the midst of the difficult process of healing. We are in the United States of 2017, a nation torn by polarizing viewpoints, populated by individuals filled with fear and trauma, wounded by decades of violence and injustice. Perhaps our situation does not compare with what took place in South Africa. Perhaps it does. But the question arises, when does our healing begin? The answer is, it's already begun. The construction of the kingdom of God is always ongoing. Sometimes it is thunderous and apparent and evident to everyone. Most times, it's quiet and low-key and hidden to most. But it continues. No matter what you think about our current national situation, if you wanted to mobilize people to get off their chairs and start working to build the kingdom of God, there may be, have been no better catalyst than some of the actions of our new president. Whether you find President Trump's action to be wise or foolish, you have to admit they are mobilizing people to kingdom-building action. People with the desire to ensure justice for family, for friends, for neighbors, and even for strangers, but had no idea of what they could do, now have a reason to get up and find out. People afraid of how they might be perceived and what they could lose if they spoke truth to power are now finding the courage to speak out. And people who love Jesus, who want others to know the love of Christ, but weren't quite sure how to share that love, they now have an arena to show that the virtues of love, justice, grace, mercy, and forgiveness can be shared with everyone, regardless of affiliation or belief. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Some have suggested that if our new president isn't the second coming of King David, then perhaps he's the second coming of King Cyrus of Persia. That is, he may not be a lover of God, but he could be someone used by God to accomplish his will. Does God want Donald Trump to be president? I don't know. But I sure as hell can say that he's using the situation to gather construction workers for the kingdom of heaven. The need for builders has always existed. It's just more evident now to more people. Each of us is called to the task of kingdom building. Each of us has gifts and talents that we bring to the fore. Each of us has pain and trauma that we attempt to hide. Through the good news, God calls all of us to bring them forward, for all of it can be used to build the kingdom. And in fact, by building the kingdom with our lives, we are actually adding to the good news. No act of malice, no thought of ill will, and no moment of suffering disqualifies us because the call to action is clothed in the qualifying blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus. Jesus says, no more waiting for the right place or the right time or the right leadership. No more thinking that there are others already doing the work. 
No more thinking that your lack of talent or ability or your scars or your wounds prevent you from doing the work. We are the ones we've been waiting for. I am the one who's right here waiting for you to join me. So what will our answer be? As we close tonight, I want each of us to consider our response to the good news and to think of what we can offer to God's construction project. How can I seek justice? How can I fight oppression? How can I show compassion? How can I help? How can I forgive? How can I be forgiven? How can I heal? How can I be healed? Whether great or small in our eyes, these are all acts of kingdom building. And each block represents what you can bring. So there are blocks scattered throughout the room in each of your rows. And I ask you to take a few moments to respond to God, to pray. And then if you feel comfortable as a symbolic act to take one of these blocks found at the end of your aisle on the table and help me build a tower right there. There might not be enough blocks here for everyone to participate in the symbol, but your life and my life, they are the building materials of the kingdom of heaven. And as the musician Michael Gunger says, God makes beautiful things. He makes beautiful things out of us.
This is a symbol of what you bring to the table. But it can't just be a symbol. It has to be something that you bring to your world, not in here, outside, to your friends, to your families, to your loved ones, to your coworkers, to people, strangers you don't know. These are the building blocks. Love, understanding, compassion, forgiveness, hope. This is what we can bring. And so as you go out there today, don't forget, don't think of this just as a symbol. Remember what this represents and go and do that. Take God out with you.